0: Hello, welcome to the podcast from How to Academy, the home of big thinking. I'm Vas Christadulu. This week our guest is the legendary playwright and screenwriter David Hare, who joined Hannah McInnes for a live stream last month looking back on his life and illustrious career.
1: David Hare, thank you very much indeed for joining us and, and bigger. Cool. Awesome. It's a pleasure. So I I was listening earlier to uh, your inheritance tracks that you chose for a 2016 BBC interview. Um, One of them was uh, Simple Twist of Fate, which you said always holds an appeal for you because everything that's happened has happened to you by providence and happenstance. So I'm just wondering if you could start by sort of telling us about those set of circumstances that really began your career as a writer, a playwright
0: just it was pure chance. I mean everything that happened in my life was chance. I went to one school that I wasn't meant to go to because I got scarlet fever and that meant that I couldn't sit for a scholarship for the school that I was meant to go to so I went to another school and at that school was Christopher Hampton and you know Christopher Hampton later asked me to be literary manager at the Royal Court Theatre and I was running a tiny little theatre group which was going around the country In a van a playwright failed to deliver a play we had to have something to rehearse the next monday and so on wednesday i started writing something on my knee and that's what i mean about happenstance if that playwright had delivered his play maybe i would never have had to become one myself and the play i wrote was absolutely as terrible as you would expect a play that was written in four days to be i mean it's only an hour long But on the other hand, the dialogue was very speakable. And at the first rehearsal, which because I was also co-directing the play, the actors just, you know, looked at it and I could see them think, oh, this is great. I can say this and I won't look a complete idiot if I say this. And it's that sort of basic facility that I didn't know I had. And that's why I tell everyone it doesn't just apply to playwriting. It applies to everything. Try things. Because you may discover in yourself a skill that you didn't know you had. And that, I think, discovering an ability that you have not suspected. And I had no suspicion that I wanted to be a writer. I thought I wanted to be a theatre director. It's so lovely when you come on a talent that you didn't know you had.
1: I was going to ask, what had you wanted to be? So you'd wanted to be a theatre director and once you... Yes, I mean, I really
0: wanted to write work in the cinema, but there was very little British cinema at the end of the 60s. It was going through one of its many (laughs) periodic crises. I mean, I don't think we can count the number of crises that have been in the British cinema during my lifetime. and it's always been a really invalid form, the feature film. The British feature film has always been an endangered species. But it was particularly weak and spindly at the end of the 60s, early 70s. And so there wasn't really any industry to go into. And so I chose to become a theatre director instead.
1: And you have, of course, since done a lot in that sort of in that industry, which we'll come to in terms of film and and screenwriting. But so so once you just fell upon it in this way, that was all you ever then wanted to carry on doing, writing. Uh, I wonder which writers or playwrights at that point and perhaps still now inspired you and in who you drew from?
0: My feeling about this is always that the, the more somebody seems great, the less you want to write anything like them. I've never understood this thing about influence. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you really, you know, I for instance thought Athel Fugard who was doing all this wonderful work about apartheid in South Africa I, you know, I, I thought he was a complete master. I thought the plays that he did with John Carney and Winston Mshona and were absolutely revelatory in the early 70s about the black experience in South Africa. But the very fact that he was so great made that territory not something that I would dare to enter. And I don't, I don't really understand the idea of influence.
1: Mm.
0: I think that I met a lot of playwrights A generation older than me and you know obviously in the first years that I was a playwright I'd meet Tennessee Williams or I'd meet Arthur Miller or I'd meet John Osborne or I'd meet Harold Pinter and you know what they all had in common was a sort of be wrong to call it grim but it is a steely determination to continue whatever your fortune and that you a conviction that you're writing for yourself and that you are doing it because you truly have to do it. And, you know, it's a common pattern among playwrights that the second half of their lives is not as easy as the first. And when I was meeting senior playwrights, they were very, very scarred. They were very marked by having fallen out of fashion or not writing as well as they used to write. And, you know, there was a certain point in probably as I became, I was about 30, where I thought, oh, my God, if you if you're going to continue <laughs> in this profession, you're really going to have to take it seriously. And you're really going to have to be your own judge. And you're not going to allow the audience or the critics or fashionable opinion to judge. You've really got to judge yourself uh, because that's the only way you're going to survive when the going gets tough. And it gets tough tough for every playwright. Theatre in particular is tied up with fashion. And there's a wonderful thing where Peter Brook says, you should always remember that theatre and fashion are hopelessly interlinked. And once you remember that, what you then have to do is forget it. Don't try and play to it. Don't, for goodness sake, try and write a play to please the fashion of the day. But on the other hand, know that you may well get your heart broken because whatever kind of play you write may or may not be in fashion and there's absolutely nothing you can do about it.
1: I mean did you manage to to do that you say you you looked at them and thought right you've got to sort of toughen up because I've heard you say we were just discussing back in a Desert Island Discs in, in sort of 1989 but also very recently in an interview I think you did only last week I've heard you say that actually you know you do have quite thin skin it's never really that easy to Kind of toughen up so much uh, in in response to both critics' reactions and audiences' reactions. And in fact, well, you told Sue Lawley back then that you were sick. I think at the opening night of every performance, and she asked you very sort of tentatively if you cried when you got critics' judgments, and to which you said, "Sometimes." I mean, does it ever get any easier to, to toughen up as you? No, could- I would I, w- I would hope, and
0: I, you know, this this may be a false. Comfort, but I believe the very quality that makes you a playwright is the very thing that makes you unsuited to being a playwright. In other words, you are oversensitive. Yeah. Um. My wife often says that whenever I enter a room, I seem to head as if drawn magnetically to the person in the in the room who is having the worst time, and it's to them that I want to talk and whom I'm most interested to talk to. Mm. And there is in in me, a uh, hypersensitivity to what people are going through. And that is sometimes ridiculous to a ridiculous degree that I can't be happy because someone else I can see is clearly unhappy. And that very quality whereby, of course, to be a writer, you have a radar for that stuff, for what's going on in the room and also for what's going on in people's lives. You have a, a certain perception about it. And that very sensitivity is the same sensitivity, which makes you unwilling to be judged. But it it is, you know, I say it to actors when young people want to be actors. I say to them, you think you're going to spend your life in self-expression. But you're not. You're going to spend your life being judged Mm -hmm. and you're going to go, oh, my God, they don't like me. They don't think I'm very good. Oh, my God, I was awful in that scene and they knew I was awful in that scene. They don't like my character, and they don't like me. And if you're not up for that, you're going to find acting a very brutal profession. And so um that constantly being judged is part of the life of the performing arts, and yeah, it does get wearing and it gets very towering, you know
1: just going back to that des Island discs I mentioned. You said in that, I got typed of political writing because I wanted theatre to be about grown-up things, namely politics. And at the time, you said theatre was very cosy, psychological, and it was new, bringing politics into the theatre, which sort of surprised me hearing you say that, because I feel like perhaps plays have forever been reacting to and, and kind of making comment on the world, politically speaking. So did you, did you feel you were doing something different then by, by doing that? Yeah,
0: I don't think that, um, you know, I don't like that word politics as if all I were doing were just bringing in some partisan point of view about a party political point of view. I'm not doing that. What I'm saying is that the subject matter that I have chosen, and I would say something like writing about the Chinese Revolution, writing about aid to the third world, writing about the diplomatic process leading up to the invasion of Iraq writing about the privatization of the railways, you know, in every case, what I'm doing is trying to blow new subject matter into the room and say, not all plays have to be about whether you did or didn't love your mother and whether your mother loved you. And those sort of crucible plays, as I call them, where a room is hermetically sealed off from the world, and not the kind of plays I've ever wanted to write. I've always wanted to write the kind of plays that bring things into the world. Mm -hmm. And the work I most admire in others is where you take seemingly unpromising subject matter. The obvious recent example was the television series Chernobyl, which Mm -hmm. I thought was completely wonderful. Mm -hmm. You know, you think at first, you think, well, who on earth wants to watch a television program about a nuclear reactor melting down? It's not the most promising subject. But the writing is absolutely masterly. And again, you wouldn't say, well, what political point of view is it putting? It's not putting a political point of view. It's saying this happens in a society in which it is impossible to speak the truth about what happened. And portraying that just seems to me gallant. It seems to me heroic. And really what I would hope the performing arts would be able to include doing alongside all the other stuff that it does. But that isn't narrowly something called politics. It's writing as if you believe that who we are and what we feel is affected by when we're living, where we're living, how we're living. I don't think my experience is the experience of a Chinese peasant. I think it's deeply affected by the wind that blew me here of social and political things that blew me to have the attitudes I have. So there's that kind of perspective on the world that I hope is in everything I do.
1: And it is, and what you've said, and you've just mentioned it there, is you're driven by an idea to sort of be ahead of public taste, not, not follow it. So you've said, you yeah. know, I'm not going to write about Trump or, or I think you've necessarily Brexit. So what compels you to write is to be getting an idea first how do you do that then? Where do you get... Where does well, that's that... the
0: great mystery, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, that's the great mystery of being a writer, is why do you choose certain subject matter and why does other subject matter seem unattractive to you? I was thinking about this the other day when I was talking to somebody about a film of, called My Son, the Fanatic, a Hanif Karishi film. This film is made in... I don't know, the mid-90s, early 90s. And it's about the radicalization of Muslim youth. The father is a taxi driver in Bradford, who's a Pakistani immigrant, who is absolutely delighted as a first-generation immigrant with everything British. His son has meanwhile turned his bedroom into a mosque and you know is praying upstairs. Hanif Qureshi wrote this, in 1995, 1990, early 90s. And yet, you know, come the 21st century, it's what every hack, boring, dead writer is now writing about, you know. And he's there long before and making the, the definitive work about it. Now, where did Hanif get that feeling that he wanted to write about how the young were being radicalized? I don't know. Uh, I don't know where that came from, but obviously it was the most wonderful piece of prescience. You know, how did James Graham spot Dominic Cummings before anybody else did? You know, he wrote about Dominic Cummings long before anyone else had heard of him. How did he do that? It's a sort of nose for what's going on um, that interesting writers have, I think.
1: Mm. And. I mean, I know, so please don't roll your eyes, because it is just perennially fascinating. I know you will have been asked this an exorbitant amount of times about whether your writing, generally whether art, plays, films, whether the purpose is that they can actually make change. But I I mean, I've been trying to think about it today because I know it's an unoriginal question, but I am still interested in whether in your mind, when you're writing, you're imagining that an audience will come in that you will change an individual's thinking, that you can create wider change like that? Or in the end, is it actually more of a cathartic process for the playwright el- yourself? No, I don't think it's cathartic. I think
0: it's, got a, I think it's got a purpose and it's got a value. And the wonderful answer to this question I best heard was Bruce Robinson, the screenwriter, who wrote The Killing Fields. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when The Killing Fields was released, they, they said to him, do you feel this film is going to have a wonderful effect on people's view of what happened in Cambodia? And he said, well, last weekend, Rambo was released as well. And so if we're going to argue that this is having a, a tremendous effect, I guess probably Rambo had something like 20 times the effect or 50 times the effect of The Killing Fields. But the fact is, we're all glad that the film of The Killing Fields exists. Because it's a marker. It's a memorial. It's something that exists that is for all time about what we feel or or felt, what a particular writer felt at a particular time. And, you know, particularly in this country where not to go into this subject, but the media are, you know, in the last year, they have been in the most hideous denial, really. They're just not doing their job, you know. They're just not interrogating the government at any serious level at all. They're just all lying on their backs and kicking their legs in the air and saying Boris Johnson is wonderful. And in this kind of atmosphere, you have to write against the tide of the time. That's the job, against the opinion of the time, rather. And obviously, you know, when I wrote Stuff Happens, which was about the invasion of Iraq, it was an extremely unpopular point of view to say that, but by and large, at the time I wrote it, the country, the majority of the country was still in favor of that invasion, but the 40% or whatever it was had no representation either from the Conservative Party, which was meant to be from the opposition or from the press or the whole British press was in favor of the invasion of Iraq with, you know, one or two honorable exceptions. Even the New York Times, the New Yorker, for God's sake, which is meant to be a liberal paper, was in favor of the invasion of Iraq. We've forgotten all that. And now, of course, my version in Stuff Happens, which is basically saying that an unscrupulous group of men at the head of the American government exploited one attack in order to be able to do something completely irrelevant that they've been planning to do all along. That is now... The conventional view of history. But when I wrote it in 2004, it was very, very far from being the conventional view. So my attitude, if I had not written that play myself, would be, thank goodness there is somebody in this country who's writing this now on behalf of all those people who feel so strongly and are totally unrepresented in conventional media.
1: But what then can? What is it then you're saying that play, a play can do, that art can do, and that fiction can do, that perhaps journalism can't do? That explain it, not- to you
0: what it's like to endure these things and what it, what it's like to live through them. And when I mentioned Chernobyl, one of the things that television series does so brilliantly is explain the dilemmas of the people who are actually trying to work out what happened, explain what happened take some responsibility for what happened and you see real human beings in a way that you can't possibly in journalism or you can't possibly in television reporting and you see you illuminate all the dilemmas and all the contradictory feelings and all the passions that they experience while they're in these completely impossible situations and to be close to the people who suffer at the heart of these events I think is really illuminating and you think of things differently because of that in answer to your question do i affect government policy no i mean i once you know when we did skylight once um george osborne came you know when he was chancellor of the exchequer and wrote an absolutely charming letter and i showed you know it was a rave letter saying what a wonderful place and I showed it to Carrie Mulligan, and Carrie Mulligan just looked at it and she said, Yeah, we look forward to George Osborne's skylight budget.
1: One of the areas I've heard you you know that you were very much ahead of, of, of things, really, long before sort of Me Too movement of things, you've been writing lead roles for women in your plays and 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 brilliant and sort of complicated and, and all different sides of women for a long time. And I've heard you say similarly with that, you know, you don't think that doing that is what helps bring about change because there has been a change in the sense that when you were doing that, it was unusual. Women were not seen enough in, in bigger roles. Now they are. Again, I've I've heard you say, you don't think, you know, you played any part in that. You don't think that theatre or art played any part in that. But do you, you don't think that through giving women those sorts of roles, more roles, you effected you some sort of change in, in that scenario, sense.
0: Yeah, but not the, yeah, I think that, uh, look, when I, when, when I was writing all these huge women-centred works, it was absolutely astonishing how it didn't catch on. It was absolutely, actually, it was quite bewildering why it didn't catch on, and you would still go to the theatre and see the bloke raging away at the woman at the side of the stage. And you kind of go, well, is nothing I do. But what changed things for women was societal change. And that societal change basically didn't come from within the theatre. It came from outside. And that I feel the same about the current um, move towards diversity in the theatre and um, the attempt to open up the theatre to ethnic minorities it's happening because it's happening throughout society. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm very very glad that I wrote all those parts for women, just because it was so interesting and nobody else was doing it. And it was if if you wanted to see a complicated, interesting woman on the British stage, you more, you more or less had to go to a play of mine for a long period. That was how it was. And so, yeah, I, I held a light, I held a lamp for a long time, but I'm very happy to have the lamp taken off me by other people.
1: And going back then to we were talking earlier about sort of thin skin and and reacting audience reactions. Generally, I want to come and look at the sort of differences and similarities between writing for screen and writing for theatre. But in terms of that reaction you're not sitting in an audience, you don't have such a palpable reaction. Is it easier letting go and, and in that sense when you're writing for, for film or for television?
0: I think that film is such a lottery. And I feel with films that we don't really understand them at the time. And what happens to them when they immediately come out doesn't necessarily, isn't the judgment on them. So that you will have something like... Um, there are films that we now regard as great classics, you know, Pe- Peeping Tom by Michael Powell, which was universally um, derided when it appeared. Brief Encounter, which did not get accepted as a classic for 15 years. You know, these films that we now think of as the absolute staples and great the great classics, actually their their fortunes go up and down a great deal over the years. And um, with a movie, it's so new, a movie. It's so, as it were, in your face that I often feel myself, I go back to movies. I watch them often more than once. And I love watching a film five years later and seeing if it still seems as great as it seemed at the time. And some have definitely faded and some seem to grow on the shelf in the most mysterious way. So I think with film, you never really feel that the reaction is definitive. I don't know that I've ever come off a movie saying I made a really good movie but I've looked at movies 10 years later and said this is a really good movie.
1: Do you think I'm really interested to hear you say that do you think we so we don't do that with plays do you think the reaction to a play? I think when you're on a
0: play you by and large the people in the room tend to know whether it's any good or not and they tend to be right about it. I think there is some justice in plays between the experience of the audience and the experience but in film, there is absolutely no, no justice at all. Great masterpieces, you know. I mean, one of my favorite films of recent years is um, that lovely film Margaret by um, Kenneth Lonergan. And that, to me, has some of the best writing in the American cinema, some of the greatest scenes in the American cinema. Margaret was a troubled production. It ended up in being recut by Martin Scorsese. It finally appeared in a two- and three-quarter-hour version The version is plainly unsatisfactory. The filmmaker was unable to finish the film. And yet trapped in it is the most incredible jewellery. Wonderful, wonderful. There are scenes that are just the best scenes because Kenny Lonergan is a very good writer. And um, I just, um, did anybody know? Did anybody notice? Did anybody go to see it? Maybe 10 years. That's the cinema. It it takes time.
1: Mm. And when you're writing for for screen, is is there a notably different approach, or do you, to to writing for theatre in in your mind? Do you have well? The,
0: the big difference is that you know that you are beginning a process of what I call call lawyering. Um, that's to say, you're defending your script, and you you will be defending your script to a lot of people, and. I I recently calculated on a feature film that I'd worked on that I'd spent 10 times the time lawyering on its behalf than I had writing it. So that by the time the people who pay for it, the producers, the companies that are investing in it, the director, the actors, by the time you've been through all those processes, you have got to be an articulate defendant of your own ideas but you also unless you are a complete idiot have to keep your ears open for things that will improve it and so I would say the art of screenwriting is almost the art of knowing what to listen to and what not to listen to because so many views will be coming at you before it passes you know this huge project passes through that tiny lens and the cameraman is going to be the last person who's going to say, well, that doesn't seem quite right to me. But well, that doesn't seem quite right to me, is what you will have been hearing for the last year and a half, two years. And you need patience for that. And you need a very clear idea about what you yourself are trying to do what you need. And as my friend Christopher Hampton says, you also have to have the confidence to walk away. Because if you don't If you're not willing to walk away, they've got you and they will make you write stuff you don't believe in because they will see it another way. I'm making the process sound sinister, and it's not often sinister. It's often a lot of people who've got a very different idea of what they want the film to be, and they're perfectly entitled to pitch their view, but you are perfectly entitled to defend yours. And it it is a battle. I mean, being a screenwriter is a battle. And um, I think the authority of the playwright is much more accepted in theatre culture than it is in film culture. And that's expressed by the fact that in theatre culture, you own the copyright. It's your work. And ultimately, you have the ace of hearts because you you win every argument. If you bring everything to an argument, you will win. Not that I ever do it, but... You have the copyright. They can't do the play unless you agree. On a movie, you're a hired hand. And if you're a hired hand, you have to do what the producers want because they own the property.
1: And it's really interesting to write sort of that. It's essentially a relinquishing of control, but that comes both on stage and screen as a writer. How how easy is it to, to generally to... You've directed a lot, of course, of both your plays and your screenwriting. But when you've dreamt it up, it's your idea, they're your characters, you've lived with them. How easy in general, if you're not directing, is it to, to let go of that? Because I know that you particularly love being in the sort of rehearsal room in the space. I, I wonder how easy it is to relinquish control in any sense of your writing off to, to somebody else's vision.
0: Well, if if, there's, if somebody's bringing something to it, you know, if if you've got terrific actors then an actor who looks at the whole thing from only one point of view rather than the, you know, on a movie, the 25 points of view that you're looking at it from, is going to say, hang on, I don't understand if I if I do this, why do I do that? If I think this, why do I think that? And those actors, not the ones who are self-aggrandizing and asking for long speeches of self-explanation, but the ones who actually are being intelligent about I can't construct a performance if I don't have such and such, or I don't understand why this person does that. You're going to listen to those people because if you go to a rehearsal of a scene and Meryl Streep says to you, you know, I think I don't need that line. Just watch. And you watch. You're crazy not to cut that line. And you're also crazy not to see that it's much better for Meryl Streep's suggestion. But that will entirely depend on her being Meryl Streep and being able to do things that other actors perhaps couldn't do. And so that's why I love actors. I love the process with actors. And for me, that's the jam on the whole. That's the bit that never disappoints. The bit that never disappoints me is the, the process of working with actors and um, what, they, what they bring to add to your work that you'd never have imagined.
1: You've worked with some extraordinary casts. I I, I heard you talking earlier about one of the sort of most exciting moments for you or proudest. I can't remember which word you used to describe it was making the Johnny Warica with all sorts of of wonderful people. Perhaps you could just tell those who might not be familiar about that experience.
0: Well, the Warica trilogy, um, which are the, the three films, Page Eight, Salting the Battlefield and Turks and Caicos, have for reasons completely unknown to me. Reappeared on Netflix. I don't know why, but for that reason, absolutely everybody is talking to me about them because a lot of people are saying exactly as I said earlier they're saying, Oh, I never saw this at the time, or Oh, I didn't really like it at the time, but now I think it's be. And people's attitudes change and they sort of go, Well, you know, I sat down to watch it and then Bill Nye was there and then Rachel Weiss appeared and then Michael Gambon came on and then, um, you know, Judy Davis appeared and then. Christopher Walken appeared, and then Winona Ryder appeared, and then Ray Fiennes appeared, and it 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 was like a festival of acting, and it was just that it happened at that time that actors were drawn to having a good. They they thought they'd have a good time doing it, and they were willing to play much smaller parts than usual, partly because they have a great deal of respect for Bill Nye, who's sort of you know universally loved within the profession, and so people will. Appear, But Bill found it quite hard to act with some of his heroes. I think probably Michael Gambon (laughs) represents. Really? Uh, Yeah, I think Michael is sort of, you know, he's the example of everything Bill would like to be. And then Bill was almost speechless trying to work with Christopher Walken because he spent his whole life, as we all have, in dark places in cinemas, wondering at the amazement that it's Christopher Walken. And I I was very very proud to be directing Christopher Walken insofar as it is possible to direct Christopher Walken, which is quite a challenging thing to do.
1: And I think Bill Nye, um, it, you know, it was it was him who said I'm I, I will not I'm not going to work on this unless you, you are, are directing me, um, if if I'm right. But um, was it Roadkill? I think was last year. I, I watched yeah. it, it was last year, and you said that that was a response really to a sort of a real lack of anything about the Conservative Party in fiction, which which is true when I think about it in an art. Why is that, do you think?
0: I don't know. I think it's part of the British lack of imagination. There's a whole British thing about the Conservatives being the natural party of government. And when any other party appears, I think probably 45 years of my 70 have been governed by increasingly useless conservative governments. And yet somehow they are thought to be the natural state of affairs in this country. And so because they're the natural state of affairs, I think that's another reason nobody writes about them. But actually they're rather peculiar and they're in a terrible, I think a terrible ideological mess. In other words, I don't think conservatism makes sense anymore. And obviously you can see that what Johnson is doing at the moment is a version of Keynesian socialism. It isn't the same thing that Cameron and Theresa May and um, George Osborne believed in. How long this is going to last. And you can see Rishi Sunak at the side going, I don't think I like this very much. I I mean, there are definitely vibrations, but I think it's because conservatism is in a deep philosophical mess which crudely, I can talk for a long time about this, but I'll say it very quickly. You can't have a free market without free movement of people. The two belong together. And if your whole political project is to throw up walls and prevent people from trading in your market, sorry, you are not a free marketeer. And so the propaganda that's been going on since the 1980s about the need for Britain to compete in the world in the free market, to be out there, That is, sorry, that is just not what is happening. What is happening is that we are not letting people who can do things cheaper than us into our country. We're keeping them out. And so this deep philosophical problem in conservatism, nobody is willing to address. And so I really wanted to write about who are these extraordinary people and why are they continually in charge of our country? And... um, as, as I say, no, nobody writes about them at all. And um, it, it was time somebody wrote about them. It's shocking. In other words, the incoming chair of the BBC, Richard Sharp, when he, who comes from Goldman Sachs and was Ritchie Sunak's boss, you know, singled me out for criticism. In other words, when, when he came in, he said the program he most objected to uh, was roadkill. And that's because there is an omata whereby nobody ever analyzes the Conservative Party on the BBC.
1: Well, I, I mean, as you said, you, of course, we could stay on this subject, but we, are, we won't. Although I would love to mention that, of course, in Roadkill was the sort of phenomenal Helen McCrory, uh, yeah. the Prime Minister who you perhaps worked with and who, of course, incredibly sadly died a, a few weeks ago. You weren't directing that that uh, roadkill were you with me?
0: I wasn't directing it, but uh, you know, Helen was ill. She knew she was ill. She wanted to do it. And um, various people advised her not to do it. And she did it while she was ill. And uh, I just can't praise her highly enough, both for her character, which was exemplary, but also she's just a, fa- <laughs> just a fabulous actress. Mm-hmm. But that's what I mean. And that's what I'm saying. Why, how could you not have immense pleasure of walking into a room where you're going to see Helen McCrory act your words. It's just great.
1: I I can't imagine. Yes, deeply envious of of you walking into that room, certainly. Uh, In terms of this year, of course, I can't not ask you about this extraordinary year we've had. You know, the theatres have gone dark for a very long time. They lit up. You had your um, play at the bridge, of course, with with Ralph Fiennes um, about your experience of getting COVID. But we have it's been unimaginably tough for theatre. Do you feel a sense of optimism that they can get back that it can get back on its feet now? And I know you've said that it needs a sort of revolution really going forward.
0: I, I, I just was bewildered by all these artistic directors saying, we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And you you sort of go, you're going to do that with what exactly? To which the answer is, the only thing that really changes theatre and refreshes it is hearing from people that you haven't heard from. And all great changes in the theatre have always come from writers. They've never come from directors. They've never come from producers. They come from Ibsen at the end of the 19th century with social realism. They come from Brecht in Germany. They come from Eugene O'Neill inventing the serious modern American play. They come from John Osborne. And you can't predict when these things are going to happen. But we're not going to have a revival in the British theatre without hearing the voice of a writer who reaches out to the majority. And what I was trying to say was that my fear is that the theatre is going to be very inwardly turned a year of inward discussion has been inevitable we've had to have it because there's been no theater so people have been talking one to another Um, but whether it thrives and gets out again among large numbers of people will entirely depend on the producers being clever enough to put their finger on who the next great voices are that reach out into the society in the way Sheila Delaney and John Osborne reached out in the 1950s.
1: Do you have any sense or feeling of who some of those voices might be?
0: No, because by very definition, you don't know where they're coming from. You know, the 50s theater was T.S. Eliot and um, Christopher Fry and there was talk of a poetic revival. And then suddenly this man who's living on a barge in Chelsea Wharf sends in a play And George Devine, who is running the Royal Court Theatre and intends a season of poetic French drama and to get novelists writing for the theatre, instead has the sense, the intelligence to say, this is where the energy is coming from. And, you know, he puts on Look Back in Anger. Laurence Olivier immediately says, I want to act in his next play. He acts in The Entertainer. And suddenly the Royal Court Theatre exists, which it never would have done without John. And so no, the very nature of the new voice in the theatre, the one that really grabs you by the throat, is that you have no idea where it comes from next.
1: Given me sort of, sort of shivers of the excitement from that wonderful story. Talking about what next, before I go to the audience questions, if you could just, what are you, I mean maybe it's top secret and like the mystery of where you conjure up your ideas from, but what are you, I know you're always working on something. What What is next and what? No, is I'm next? writing a
0: play. Uh, no, I have written a play, but I've waited a very long time for it to go on. It's going on in February, March. And it's just taken probably three years because of the pandemic. But my situation is the same as everybody else's. We've all been in this eternal waiting room. And I'm also publishing a book of essays and poems. I've, I've started writing poetry in the last 10 years. Mainly because my wife objected that I never wrote about her. Um, and so poetry just seemed to be the best way to write about her. And so, but I've branched out from the subject of my wife and I, I write about other things as well. But I've also collected a lot of essays together because um, I've enjoyed writing prose more in the last 10 years than I had in the rest of my life.
1: It's, um, yes, you recently wrote a poem, which, which you perhaps, which you read, I think, about our, our dear Prime Minister, but we don't have time um, for you to read that. So I'm going to ask you some of the wonderful questions that have come in from the audience. Um, someone asks, which I'm intrigued to know myself, whether a play has ever made you change your mind or opinion about something whilst you were watching in the theatre? I was
0: talking uh, oddly earlier last week about a play of Tom Stoppard's called Professional Foul and it was a television play and I'm going right back to 1977, 78. And it was about charter 77, which anybody who you I'm afraid you have to be my age to remember this, but at a time when Czechoslovakia was in the communist sphere, there were a number of liberals in Czechoslovakia who launched a movement for freedom, of whom Havel became the best known and later became president. And Tom Stoppard wrote a completely wonderful television play about a trip by an English academic to a a conference in Prague. And it was so powerful and so much, what I was uh, saying earlier about the reality of living under dictatorship, that it made me ashamed that I hadn't ever really, in my mind, contemplated the lives of people who were suffering under Soviet communism at that time. And I can't say I ever thought of Soviet, you know, like like most socialists, I chose not to think about Soviet Russia in the 60s and 70s, A, because it didn't seem to concern me, and B, because I thought of it as completely different from what I believed in. But you know, I think Tom Stoppard was ahead of us all in that sense of saying this is where a huge amount of human suffering is going on through the denial of freedom. And yeah, I did then think and, and began to think oh, maybe Soviet communism isn't monolithic. I can't say I predicted the fall of the wall. I absolutely didn't. And I had no clue it was coming when it came. But I did think this is no way to make people live, you know. And it was the power of his writing.
1: Another question with there's a new documentary out on Tennessee Williams. Can you tell us some of your memories of of him?
0: <laughs> that, that really would take a very long time. I lived in New York for a year, and Tennessee uh, how do I explain it? He got up every morning, he worked every morning, and then he began to drink, probably at 10 30, 11 o'clock in the morning and then he drank through the whole day and by the time i saw him which was usually six six thirty we'd go to a party together or something or we'd have dinner together he was pretty far gone (laughs) he was absolutely stewed he would always want to go back to his place he would always want to go on drinking till three o'clock in the morning but there he was at his desk every single morning at 8 30 he'd be at his desk and he'd be writing how his constitution bore it, I have absolutely no idea. And, you know, there were long evenings in which you couldn't really understand a word he was saying. Uh, but, you know, he's Tennessee Williams, for goodness sake. And um, you're not going to, you know, leave him alone in a restaurant, are you, at, at 9.30 or 10 o'clock, because you can't understand what he's saying. But, he, you know, his obsessive theme The obsessive theme of his conversation was that nobody liked his plays anymore and that he could not be produced in New York because of the enmity of the New York Times, which effectively ran him out of town. And so that he would talk about at great length. And um, he would be just absolutely astonished to know the high regard in which he is held and the way... His reputation has grown and grown and grown since his death and he's, you know, universally performed and universally admired in some way that um, he certainly wasn't in the second half of his life and it's so sad he's not around to see it.
1: Fascinating Um, and sad as you say. uh, um, Annabel was asking how different it was for you writing Via Dolorosa in which, of course, you were the only actor and whether you would write a piece for yourself to act in again.
0: No, well, you know, I learned it. It was, I was only 50 and it was an hour and 40 minutes long. You know, you try learning an hour and 40 minutes, even if you've, even if you've written it yourself, it's, you know, any actor will tell you an hour and a quarter, hour and 20. Once you go past an hour and a half, you're really stretching your capacity. So I can't anymore. I just, I I couldn't learn it now. I'm too old. And anyway, it was something, it was an ingenious way of doing something that I'd never done before that I particularly wanted to do, which is to talk about Israel-Palestine in a way which I hoped would make both sides, or rather all sides, listen to me. And the fact that it did, I think they did, I think was possible in 1998-99, I I have very grave doubts about whether it would be possible now, unfortunately. In other words, positions were already entrenched, but people would at least listen to each other. Now, Palestinians, Israelis, and those who have views away from the region, but living in other parts of the world, their views are far, far more entrenched than they were 20 years ago, I regret to say.
1: Somebody asks what your comfort reading is, Steve.
0: What my comfort reading? Lately or I I went after I had COVID, then I was reading all these Icelandic thriller writers. Do you know Um. that? Does everybody know? I can't even pronounce their names, (laughs) the three of them. There's one, it's possible to name called Johansson just because I can say that name. Mm. Uh, But the woman whose name is completely unpronounceable who is Iceland's greatest thriller writer. She's just magnificent but i couldn't I couldn't begin to pronounce her name and i'm so but it ends dott, of course, because she's somebody's dota but she she and it begins y r s a so if anyone from Iceland is watching, they will know exactly who I'm talking about. but I love these Icelandic thrillers they were absolutely great, and my current favorite um reading, which I recommend to everybody is this wonderful um, cookery writer called Ellie Risbridger. Have you heard of her? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. I mean, can she write? And um, the idea that you could be that good a writer and the form in which you choose to write is the cookbook, that is just fabulous. To choose a form. There was a great American called MJK Fisher in the 40s and 50s who wrote memoirs in the form of recipes and cookbook, but it hasn't been done since. And um, Ellie Risbridger, I think, is really brilliant. And uh, I, I've also, by the way, her recipes are really great.
1: But is there a play in that with her, you two together? I can feel it.
0: I don't think so. I, I, I think it's too specific. And I, she's a writer. Let her do it.
1: Right, need of encouragement from you. Um, somebody was asking about your experience, and you obviously, of course, directed The Year of Magical Thinking. I think that was with Vanessa Redgrave. What was your experience of directing that?
0: Well, it was a very specific thing because, obviously, Joan Didion was recovering from, well, she had written about the loss of her husband, but in the time between when she published that book, year of magical thinking about the loss of her husband she also lost her daughter quintana so she had lost both her husband and her daughter so by the time i came to work with her she was weighing 75 pounds and um as she said anything under 75 pounds and you begin to feel the cold and she was so thin that my sole purpose in life, I said to her, I'll direct the play, but I will do it on the condition that I get you to eat. And at every script meeting, I would get donuts, or I'd get soup, or I'd get stew, or I'd just get something to build her up because she really had... Her grief was just unbearable, absolutely unbearable. And so, you know, it was a very specific time in her life but you know i was working with someone who i knew was a great writer and she was also completely robust she'd done what she calls crash rewrites of movies so she had no ego she if you said joan i think it should be the other way around i don't think it's like that sure fine i'll change it it was like completely practical and so like all the really great writers she was so confident she was not threatened by notes you could give her any note and she'd say yeah i'll think about that okay i'll try that yeah yeah you're right we'll do that, we'll change that because that's what the really good ones are like because she knew that her integrity is so baked in that she can't put a foot wrong and so we had a glorious time together I, i i think she's wonderful And um, I loved working with her. It was just nothing but pleasure. And Vanessa Redgrave was at her most magical. And um, we were just a very happy group. It was a lovely time. Uh, Paradoxically, because the subject was the death of her husband and her daughter.
1: Fascinating. Um, Somebody was wondering, you know, this might be a question that's almost too hard to answer, but whether there's a play a particular play you wish you had written. I don't know how one answers really that question.
0: (laughs) I don't know if you've ever seen a play of Brian Friel's called Faith Healer. Um, And it's a play about a man who's a faith healer. And he goes around Ireland and he heals people by faith. And he doesn't understand his own gift. And so he doesn't know how he does it and he doesn't know why he's able to do it and then he loses the gift and when he loses the gift the world turns against him and accuses him of being a hoax and a phony and a um, exploiter and a sham but he's never been a sham he's a man who had a gift and he didn't know why he had it in the first place and he no more knows why he's lost it about 15 minutes into this play (laughs) I experienced for the only time in my life the most intense feeling of jealousy I've ever had. I just went, you bastard! you have come across the most wonderful metaphor for human life. That we don't know why something works and we don't know why it ceases to work. And to make that the metaphor of your play, I just went, you lucky bugger. You you just really you you had such a great idea. And the interesting thing is, jealousy in that sense isn't competitive. You don't think, oh, I wish I'd had it. You just think you it, you're just he's just a pig in mud because he can't go wrong with that subject because it's just such a fabulous metaphor.
1: The time has somehow whizzed by very very quickly. It's been so wonderful hearing from you and lots of stories, unexpectedly lovely stories as well. And so thank you everyone who, who signed in this evening and David thank you very very much
0: yeah. uh, can I just say thank you to everyone who spent Monday evening doing this I really am grateful to everyone who's um, tuned in thank you very very much indeed thank
1: you thank you this week's podcast
0: starred David Hare and was presented by Hannah McInnes the producers were me and Esme Bright and the editor was John Dorty. If you enjoyed the show, shout about it from the rooftops or write us a review. You can also join us live every night and ask our guests questions of your own. Find out who we're hosting at howtoacademy.com. Thanks for listening.